Hello, a very warm welcome to all of you joining us virtually and those who will listen into this recording later. I trust you are all doing fine. My name is Vivian Atakos. I am Regional Communication Specialist for the International Potato Center. I'm based in Nairobi, Kenya. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this United Nations Food Systems Summit Science Day side event. And the title for this event is COVID-19 Food Systems and One Health in an Urbanizing World, Research Responses at a National Level. This session is co-organized by CGIAR and RUAF, which is the Global Partnership on Sustainable Urban Agriculture and Food Systems. We have prepared a rich session for you with great speakers lined up, but we will also wish to hear from you. So to participate in this session, and we'll come back to you during the Q&A session, please we'd like you to follow the presenter's remarks and then submit your questions on ifpre.org or on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, or using the hashtag AskIfPre if you're following us via Twitter. So for now, allow me to start us off and move the discussion ahead. And I will introduce our first speaker. Uh, she is Claudia Sadoff. She is the Executive Management Team Convener and Managing Director, Research, Delivery and Impact at the CGIAR. Claudia is going to give us her opening remarks. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you so much, Vivian, and hello to everyone. It is really my great pleasure today to be introducing this UN Food System Summit Science Days side event. As Vivian had said, the session is organized by CGIAR and by RUOF, the Global Partnership on Sustainable Urban Agriculture and Food Systems, on a very important topic, COVID-19, food systems, and One Health in an urbanizing world. In its very far-reaching impacts, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought into very sharp relief the intricate system that underpins our global connectivity and the challenges that we face. It has given us all a clear understanding of the linkages between food, the environment, health, and economic growth. And it has resulted quite tragically with more than 100 million people slipping into poverty since the pandemic began. In particular, the pandemic has brought to the fore the concept of One Health, the idea that the fortunes and well being of animals, people, and planet are codependent. All as we know, inextricably linked to the food system. With growing levels of urbanization around the world, this relationship is becoming ever more tight and entwined. By 2050, more than two thirds of the global population will live in urban air environments, a shift that requires food systems to evolve in response, to balance and integrate the needs of people with the needs of the natural world. I'm proud to say that the CGIR is working hard to rise to this challenge. And evidence of that is our COVID-19 hub. This hub is hosted by the CGIR research program on agriculture for nutrition and health. It is co-implemented by key CGIR entities, entities, IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, ILRI, the International Livestock Research Institute, and the CGIR system organization, in partnership with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. This COVID-19 hub has coordinated our research to support the pandemic response and recovery and to provide crucial insights for national action plans. This work 
and the work that I'm sure many of you joining us today are involved in will help to ensure a research-informed response to COVID-19 that can move effectively to reach the world's most vulnerable people. Today, we will be hearing about some of these important efforts, including the first global scale assessment of the impacts of COVID-19 on food security, conducted by the CGIR researchers and partners under the COVID-19 hub. This work and engagements like today's important event can help lay the foundation for informed responses, both policies and practices in some of the world's hardest hit countries, allowing for support both in rural and in urban settings. The pandemic has clearly demonstrated how food security playing out through food systems impacts the human condition beyond sectors and silos and borders. By bringing together evidence, knowledge and data and bringing these insights to action, we can help build back better and build forward better from this terrible global challenge. I look forward to today's exciting panel of speakers and an engaging discussion. Many thanks and back to you, Vivian. Indeed, thank you. Thank you, Claudia, for those opening remarks and indeed um, hoping that we are going to be able to build back better and build forward better. Those were your, 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 your points and I'm just highlighting them. So thank you so much for joining us and I know you will have to run at some point uh, we, we release you, but now we can continue to move on uh, to our next speaker who's going to share from the report on uh, COVID-19. So it's my pleasure now to welcome Christoph Bini, who's the Principal Scientist, Food, Environment and Consumer Behavior at the Alliance of Bioversity International and SIAT. So Christoph is going to give um, a presentation on the COVID-19 Hub Report. Welcome, Christoph. Thank you. Um, thank you, Vivian, for giving me the opportunity to present this uh, global assessment. And a uh, good day to everyone who is following this side event uh, from wherever you are. So my name is Chris Benet, and uh, with a team of colleagues, uh, we were commissioned by the CGIAR to conduct this global assessment, which I propose to uh, present now. Next, please. So the objective of the study was to conduct a global assessment of the impact of the COVID-19 during the first 12 months of the pandemic on the food security of the different actors of food system. And then uh, drawing on the key findings, the ambition was to try to um, identify some potential lessons in relation to the resilience of food systems and possibly draw some preliminary recommendation on uh, building back better. Next, please. So in order to fulfill those objectives, uh, the framework we use was built primarily around two concepts, food security and food environment. And therefore, it included elements such as availability, accessibility, proximity, convenience of food, we also acknowledge the importance uh, to embrace a food system approach. So elements such as food waste on losses on diversity of food were included. Likewise, well-being and agency of people were considered, including for instance, 
sense of self-efficacy and prevalence of domestic violence. And then finally, um, although the main analysis was conducted at the micro level, we also discussed uh, briefly in the report two macroeconomic indicators, change in GDP and change in poverty incidence. Next, please. So the search for document was done in four languages, English, Spanish, French, and Portuguese, only covered uh, the 12 months of 2020. Uh, then after scanning and, and assessing the document that were available, uh, essentially looking in particular uh, uh, at their reliability, we ended up with uh, 337 documents which described or discussed the impact of COVID-19 uh, on food system in 62 countries. And with the exception of five of them, all of those countries were low or middle income countries. Next, please. So let's, let's move quickly to the, the result of the assessment. So the key salient points that emerge from this global assessment are first, the fact that with the exception of uh, some initial disruption due to panic buying, there hasn't been any major food availability issue. So there was no supply shortage, and no local or global famine, contrary to what some experts uh, initially feared. So the major disruption for the consumers have been essentially around physical and economic accessibility of food. Second main uh, point, it's correct that the food system did not collapse, but its resilience has been achieved at a great cost. In particular, those who lost the most were the small and often informal actors who were forced to shut down, but did not receive any support or compensation in many countries. In contrast, those who benefited the most have been the larger grocery store and the supermarkets, which reported huge benefit uh, and huge profit in 2020, essentially because they were allowed to remain open and were able to respond to the consumer's demand. Next, please. So uh, in sum, there is little doubt uh, that there has been a degradation uh, of the food security of hundreds of millions of people in the course of the first 12 months of the, the pandemic. But that degradation was not the result of the failure of the food system itself. Instead, that degradation was the result of the slowing down of the world economy and the consequences that that slowing down had had on the purchasing power of people. The food system itself kind of resisted. Now there's several different interpretations uh, about that apparent resistance. Either we can see it as the empirical evidence of the resilience of the food system on its actor. So according to that interpretation, then the system has been affected by a shock, yet he managed to maintain his functionality and to deliver food, which will be in line with what a resilience of a food system is about. Another explanation, however, which is less policy attractive, is one where that resilience is simply the result of the fact that the food sector had been recognized as one essential service and as such has been protected. And the counterfactual to that, of course, are the other sectors such as austerity, tourism, aerial transport, 
which had not been protected and had collapsed. The report also concluded that overall, the actual effect of the pandemic has to fully quantify and documented. And one of the main reasons for that being the fact that we still have only a limited number of detailed and rigorous study. More are being published right now as we speak, and we can hope that in a couple of months, the actual impact of the pandemic on the different aspects of our life and our food system will be clearer. In that sense, at the present time, although expect, um, expect some severe impact on people's nutritional status, those are still, or at least were still unclear at the time this report was written, those are expected to reflect both the consequences of the reduction in purchasing power, but also the reduction in choice and diversity of food that were mentioned earlier. Likewise, the effect of the shift from consumer or food consumed away from home is especially in the urban context. To food entirely consumed at home are still undocumented and will deserve some further research. Finally, some um, accounts of domestic violence were also reported, but we were not able to elaborate on that issue. Next, please. So now if we, uh, if we revisit those results from a resilience perspective, the first thing um, is to highlight the still relatively poor understanding we have about food system resilience, essentially because of the lack of empirical data. Most of the work uh, are still either rhetorical or too theoretical. Um, now, if we rely on the resilience, on the literature on resilience, uh, we can identify three main areas where important information should be collected if we want to improve our ability to strengthen the resilience of the food system actors. First area, a more systematic and more comprehensive or comparative analysis of the sources of vulnerability, looking not just at technical issues such as perishability of food, but also at social, cultural, or political economy processes within the system. Second, a more in-depth analysis of the types of responses that the different actors put in place as an attempt to mitigate the impact of the initial shock. That referred to the concept of ripple effect, and the idea that without understanding better uh, the behavior of actors, it would be difficult to anticipate the impact of the negative coping strategy uh, that are put in place by the different actors. Third, we also need to spend more time identifying what actually constitute what we call the resilience capacity of those different actors. In other terms, what uh, resources, what assets, are the most critical when those different actors are hit by a shock. The final remark on this is that uh, resilience should not be the ultimate objective of our intervention, but instead what we should be aiming at are sustainable food system. And in that context, resilience is just a necessary condition to achieve this sustainability. Next slide, please. So just a few words to conclude on the building back better, the three Bs. Our analysis allowed to identify a couple of cases where it would have been possible to reduce the negative impact of the COVID-19, 
In particular, if we had applied some resilience analysis principle as those that uh, I presented earlier in the previous slides. The analysis also highlighted the um, increasing use of the term building back better, but failed to identify documents with clear roadmaps on actually how to build back better. In other words, the concept of three Bs at the present time is more a rhetorical idea than a concrete plan. So for researchers to contribute to that new agenda, they will have to invest in resilience analysis, of course, but also in political economy of food system. And for governments, but also civil societies, as well as researchers and experts, we will need to identify better solutions on how to handle or to navigate uh, those cases where apparent irreconcilable tension um, emerge between divergent sector, uh, sectoral priorities, such as health and economy. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. Thank you, uh, uh, Christophe, for, for those insights based on the research that uh, you were able to carry out together with uh, your colleagues. So for now, I'd like to welcome uh, Rene van Weinheisen so that he can give some responses regarding the presentation that you just shared. Uh, Rene is a senior program officer with RUAF and uh, he's just going to comment on what you have presented. Welcome, Rene. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you very much, Vivian, and, uh, and great to be able to join you all in this event today to all of you following this event from different places. Um, compliments first for the presentation of Chris and the research done. It's very interesting to read and it's very comprehensive. And I will reflect on these findings, bringing in experiences from, from LUAF, <clears throat> sorry, and partners. So firstly, I'd like to appreciate the, uh, the setup of this work, particularly the food security framework, right? combining food systems and the food environment, especially using the additional elements or the, the, the evolving understanding of the food system and the agency elements of food environment and sustainability as key elements in this understanding. I think it's, that's crucial. I, I like to refer here to the work of the, the high level panel of experts on food security and nutrition particularly on their 15th report, where they discuss the evaluation of this concept and, and see this agency and sustainability as key elements. And, and, and agency then is understood as the capacity to decide to participate and to engage in shaping food governance with emphasis on good governance. Um, so yes, food systems and food environment do include this aspect of, of governance and enabling environment as key aspects. Yeah? and describing this as elements of transformation of the food systems. I like to, to add here also the important and increasingly important role of cities, particularly in climate change and also taking these lessons of COVID on board. Cities have an important role to play as they are key actors increasingly uh, with increasing number of people living in these cities, but also uh, being major contributors to, to climate change and pandemics. So going to next point, these, uh, these findings as just presented, and there's many more, of course, presented in the, in, the, in the report. They indeed resemble other studies like the FAO assessment done mid 2020 on, on COVID, and also some of the rapid assessments that we did with our partners and cities. Key results also there are a lack of understanding of the food system, 
and that indeed accessibility is most effective, very log logically, that there is a lot of anecdotal evidence. There's no clear monitoring. There are no indicators yet on what to uh, evaluate food, food system performance and food system resilience against. This, this study that was just presented as, as you go through it, they have, they have an interesting de description of the pathways of impact. I've very well done and illustrated. For, for me, it, the importance then, and, and this has been indicated by Chris already, is to take this further and to develop them in pathways of change. What to do? What can we do towards resilience and transformation? Which lessons from the pandemics can we use in, in, in vulnerability of the food system in general? For instance, in our work with, uh, under, uh, with FAO and, and the Waterland and Ecosystems Program, International Water Management Institute and other CG institutions, we use the vulnerability assessments done in cities with local actors in discussions with these multiple actors, and prioritization and action planning, like in cities in Kigali, Antananarivo and Tamale in Ghana. And, and, they link, and we link them deliberately to climate change. So, so indeed, from pathways of impact to pathways of change. Another important element of this assessment is the term apparent resilience. I uh, will use this term, I think, much more often in the, in the future, apparent resilience. Although it looks like the overall food system was able to resist, it came or still comes actually at a high cost, especially for the missing middle informal sector. And while supermarkets where most of the national governments turned to in the immediate responses, they thrived on this crisis, a lot of people suffered. It is here where this local, localized disconnections are key and where agency and responses and, and, and changes in governance comes in. So rec recommendations for the future should be based on what really happened and also what did work and what will work and what did we learn from that uh, in the number of cities and in local resistance to shocks, right? not only pandemics, but in general. So I'm not arguing here for self-sufficiency or full protection, protectionism, but I'm, take, I'm, I'm arguing to, to take exactly the reactions that we saw that was happening at community level within the informal network that had helped to, to, to keep people, uh, people's jobs, people's incomes or not. And, and again, in the, in, the, in the sites that I just mentioned, Quito, Toronto and Bristol cities, they, they show a lot of these informal networks were quite important. So this supports the call for more diverse, not sole or only local value chains, but more diverse and more local value chains to reconnect. Bringing me to the next point, and I think it should go to the next slide, uh, Vivian, then. Um, on this website of RUAF, and our partners, FAO and International Water Management Institute on the Waterlands and Ecosystem Programs, you will find various blogs and papers linked to this assessment. And indeed, anecdotal mostly, but quite important, with evidence from Nairobi, Lusaka, Kitwe, Colombo, Sri Lanka, Medellin, but also Toronto, Melbourne, and some other northern or European cities. And these studies show how important the enhanced understanding of the city region food system, of, of, of the food system itself was, like information on food flows, on local markets, and on different actors. It was also shown that it's important to have this information available, accessible data in, in GIS or in other ways, uh, but also that these data were discussed with different key actors, including authorities and informal sector participants and that it was a basis for joint and participatory prioritization and action planning already, so that this could uh, lead to immediate responses. 
And further, we saw the importance of supporting and, and also including in this responses informal networks. So coming to that next point, as part of the food environment and agency, I'd like to highlight the importance to better understand, or, or even more important, to include and work with the informal sector actors. And high percentage of uh, informal sector provides a high percentage of, of employment in the global south. Although also we've seen in, in agric sec agriculture sectors in the north how dependent we are on migrant labor. Uh, but, but it goes beyond employment. This informal sector is also important in, in, in creating this resilience, this, this, this ability to resist, to cope with. This is, this is associated with urban transition, urbanization, and the, the necessary food system transformation. Food or food system as a connector of urban rural area, of citizens, etc. To give you an example, we currently work in, in, in HIVOS, with HIVOS in Zambia, uh, with um, uh, representatives of Lusak and the neighboring uh, town of Chongwo, where uh, vegetables are produced for the city in so-called food labs to involve both food producers, informal vendors and end consumers, all part of, uh, which are all part of a Lusaka Food Policy Council, but to, to get together and to understand each other and to connect to each other to be able to quicker respond in terms of crisis situations. So this, this relates, I think, to the, uh, to the importance given in the already mentioned report of HLPE on, on agroecology, more diversity, recycling, creating synergies, co-creation and connectivity. The need for public investment of an, an infrastructure for local markets, local value chains and multi-stakeholder platforms. This is also what we learn from, from COVID pandemic and, and, and response actions. The working group on urban food systems led by FAO and the Global Alliance for Nutrition and many different actors, both cities, city networks and UN organizations. In its interaction with the, the action tracks leaders on the UN Food System Summit in a similar dialogue last week also called for the attention, the need for attention and action on equity and inclusion, systemic and multi-level governance, and also very key in, in, in integrating food into local planning and learning how to do that. As rule of partners, we work with the CG institutions. I mentioned INWI already, different other institutions, also with FAO and the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact on, on enhancing the understanding yeah, by, by using and developing a city region food system concept and toolkit, but also capacity building material on urban planning, food labs and multi-stakeholder platforms. And I think it's also interesting to mention that with the Global Alliance came, we just launched the Food Action Cities platform where, man, where many lessons of cities are, are uploaded and, and can be shared. So to conclude, this brings me back to the elements of food system resilience research agenda. And indeed, as will be mentioned later also, the CG institutions together with different parties have been working on urban rural relations and urban food systems and various actors of CG with others partners are currently also developing a continued initiative on, on, on the urban and period food systems and RUAF is also glad to be part of that. This research will have to be embedded within local multi-stakeholder platforms to inform but, but also to be guided to further enhance understanding of the food system and the informal sector missing middle and the importance of agency. Indeed as uh, the report ends no more rhetoric being clear on the elements of resilience and sustainable food systems. Thank you very much.
Great, thank you very much, uh, Rene, for those uh, insights. Indeed, uh, very profound. And uh, just noticing what you said here that it's all about what happened and what did we learn. So that is really going to be a determining factor in how we build back better. If I'm to use the three Bs that uh, Chris had highlighted earlier. So thank you so much for those insights and we'll come back to you. Uh, in the meanwhile, I'd like to remind our audience, uh, wherever you are tuned in from, we have people on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitter. Please, we'd like to hear from you. We know that you have insights or questions that you would like us to address. As we move on, we want to ask you to leave your comments and uh, your questions, and we will come back to you. So at this point, uh, let me move us along. We have um, an interesting panel all ready for you. And we are going to, again, look at the report, look at the bigger picture, get some country feedback, and also look at uh, what role research will play in helping us build back better. So at this point, let me welcome my panelists. I feel like I should introduce all of you uh, before we move into the first one. So we have Kuo Andam, who is with IFPRI and also with the COVID hub in Nigeria. Uh, Kuo is a research fellow with IFPRI and also, uh, well, I had mentioned that he's, he's part of the COVID-19 uh, uh, COVID response hub in Nigeria. Then we have Willem Jansen, who's with the World Bank Group. He's the lead agricultural specialist. We also have Sylvia Alonso Alvarez, who's a senior scientist epidemiologist uh, with the CG International Livestock Research Institute. We have Saro Abdella, who is TB and HIV Research Directorate Director with the Ethiopian Public Health Institute, EPHI. And then we have uh, Simon Heck. Uh, Simon Heck is the Director for the Sweet Potato Agri-Food Program uh, at the CG International Potato Center. Finally, we will have Ibrahim Mohammed. Ibrahim is Assistant Director, Department of Planning and Policy Coordination with the Federal Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development in Nigeria. So those are our panelists for today and they're going to help us further unpack that topic and also probably look at the report further. So we will start with Kwao Andam. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, he is with IFPRI and uh, a member of the COVID-19 uh, hub in Nigeria. Kwao, you can hear me? I was hoping to see you by my side on the screen. But anyway, let's start off. Thank you, Vivian. Uh, yes, I can hear you. You can hear me. Okay, great. So what impacts did COVID-19 have on household incomes, food security, and nutrition in urban areas in Nigeria? Thank you, Vivian, for, for that question. And thanks to Chris for the presentation and, and also Renee for the comments. So in response to this question, I would like to take us back briefly to March 2020. Um, and to look at the, the situation in Nigeria as far as COVID-19 was concerned. Um, as in many other countries, there were movement restrictions instituted, um, popularly known as lockdowns. And the question that you're asking about impacts on urban households as far as incomes, food security and nutrition um, requires us to look at the link between these lockdowns um, the, the actually the global situation as well and outcomes for urban households. 
specifically, we have worked with uh, looking at empirical findings from assessment of, uh, of, of the short run impacts of the lockdowns using uh, multiplayer analysis. Um, and what we found was in addition to the overall impacts on the economy in terms of the of GDP growth, urban households had specific uh, impacts uh, on, on, on their incomes. We, um, we think that lockdowns uh, have affected uh, affected household incomes during that period um, for households through um, uh, income changes as there were restrictions on movement and employment, which, uh, which restricted uh, household income or, or reduced household incomes, but also through reductions in remittances. Um, for households in Nigeria and specifically for urban households, remittances are a huge source of, of, of income. And so tying these two, um, these two impacts together, analysis showed that um, households in general suffered income losses, but urban households had higher income losses. Their incomes dropped by 26.9% um, compared with rural households whose incomes dropped by 23.7% during the period. Um, in terms of food security, um, I'll draw on um, findings from other work that we had um, based on analysis of phone survey data from uh, World Bank LSMS, but also from IFPRI phone surveys. And what we found there was that um, obviously most, given the impacts on household incomes, um, uh, several households reported reductions in food security, uh, reported increases in uh, the likelihood of skipping a meal or going without a meal altogether. Uh, importantly, um, for the next point about nutrition of households, there were specific reductions in access to nutritious foods such as eggs, meat and dairy, fruit, um, perishable um, products that needed to be purchased in the market regularly, but for which um, households could not get access to, to markets. And so there an important point about how these impacts occurred. In addition to the overall impacts from the lockdown policy, uh, policies, there were specific policies targeted that, that that, that targeted the food system. I think uh, Chris's report has already identified the difference in impacts for small um, informal actors in the food system compared with um, larger uh, supermarkets. Um, one thing that resulted from that also is that those households that were using those smaller informal um, uh, actors in the supply chain could no longer get access to, um, to, to nutritious products. And so as Chris pointed out, in terms of nutrition, we have a lot to learn uh, because some of these impacts will occur over time. But I want to lastly point to one other piece of work that we did on the impacts of the lockdown via reduction in um, school feeding services. And there we find that there were additional impacts um, for specifically for those states that had in Nigeria that had larger restrictions that affected the um, school feeding program in Nigeria. So for those households, the probability of skipping a meal was increased by an additional nine percentage points compared with those households in states where the school feeding program um, continued to operate. So overall, I would say um, we, we see we see 
clear impacts. We saw what well, we saw clear impacts on um, household incomes for urban households through the reduction in employment and through the falling remittances. We saw um, reduction in food security and access to food through the lockdown, but also through the policies targeted at food markets. And we saw some evidence of impacts on nutrition, which we need to track over time in order to establish, um, as, as Chris said, the, the broader knowledge about what happened on, in the food system from COVID-19. Thank you, Vivian, and back to you. Thank you. Thank you, Kwao. And, and maybe I'll just come back to you right away, uh, looking at that, uh, the, the response that you conducted together with the team. How did you prioritize the needs for that work that went on? And were those needs different for the urban versus rural areas? I know we need to move on, but just slight comment on that. Thanks, Vivian. So yes, a quick, a quick comment on that. So that work um, was collaborative work done by the CG centers and partners in Nigeria. This was done through the COVID-19 hub that uh, Claudia mentioned earlier for coordinating research and bringing the insights to governments and partners. So we had um, various CG centers that already started some work in 2020. Um, in order to prioritize the needs, um, what we did was to work together with our partners. This included the federal government, state governments, but most of the CG centers also have very strong partnerships with universities, research centers, producer uh, associations and the like. And, um, and so through that, we identified the needs, um, uh, the priority areas from the government side and from our partners. And the, the, the identification of those needs served as the demand side. And then we brought together the knowledge and capacities of the CG centers as the supply side to meet those needs in the ongoing work that we are doing now. And then briefly, your question about whether the, the, the needs were different for urban versus rural areas. Yes, um, indeed, we see in terms of the food system, obviously, there were some uh, supply chains, for example, the, the fish supply chain in Nigeria, where uh, our CG uh, sister institution, World Fish, is working with the CutFit. Uh, Cutfish Association, uh, Farmers Association of Nigeria. That's work that um, includes rural and urban areas, whereas some of the other work we are doing, is, for example, on, on seed varieties, focuses more on rural um, farmers. Thank you, Vivian. Again, back to you. Yes, thank you very much, Kwao. Those are profound insights. I will move on. Uh, I'd like to bring in William Johnson, uh, who's with the World Bank Group. He's going to give us the broader picture uh, regarding the, the impacts of COVID. And um, William, my question to you is on um, the fact that international food prices have increased subst substantially between January 2020 and now. And uh, the latest information shows that we are actually 33% above the January levels. So what is the response of the World Bank to these alarming food prices? Uh, both in the short term and in the long run. William? Thank, thank you, Vivian. And very nice to be with all of you. Uh, always, always a pleasure to be back with the CGIAR, where I worked until 2004. Um, on these on this food, uh, food price trends, uh, there is still a lot that we don't understand. Uh, in many places, food production hasn't re really suffered, but at the same time, availability of food has, has, has decreased and trade seems to have been kind of going a lot slower than before. So the food system in some ways has been operating a little bit more difficult than before. Now, 
at the World Bank, we're, we're trying to respond to it in two ways. In the short run, the first thing that we need to know is we need to understand what really is going on. So we need to have data, series, inputs, information available that we can use to build decisions on. And this is the most important thing for us. It's not only that we have the information, we need to use it to quickly be able to respond. So we're strengthening at this moment a food security hub to help us on those type of quick decisions. The second thing that we're doing in many countries is, you know, at this moment with these, with these food prices, uh, you want to support those people that are suffering. And the easiest way to do that at this moment in the short run is through social protection and school feeding programs. Now, there are some complications. For example, many school feeding programs have closed because the schools were closed. So that didn't work. So in that case, the social protection programs become one of the most important mechanisms that can be applied to support people that are in trouble. Usually that would mean kind of increasing the kind of the cash transfers to vulnerable families, maybe also expanding the coverage of the system. And a third thing that we've been doing in many countries is that we've been putting in place emergency uh, uh, assistance to help the food system respond. So for example, in Afghanistan, we've been supporting a campaign to distribute weed seed to make sure that farmers were able to produce a decent crop for the year that's now coming, coming to an end. In Bangladesh, we've been providing cash transfers to families, uh, to, to farmers that would otherwise have had to sell their animals and they would have run out of business and then the long-term effects would be, would be very big. And we've also been kind of supporting the distribution of dairy into the urban areas because the marketplaces where people would usually go to buy, those were closed. So we've been helping small retailers to get up and drive their, their little trucks into the neighborhoods for decentralized selling of, of, of dairy products. Now, in the medium to long run, there's of course a whole series of other things that have to be done. Now, one of the good pieces of news that is coming out at the moment is that the apparent uh, prospects in the market are not bad. Uh, the, the, the outlook for food production is positive. The question still is whether that will actually reach the consumer. You know, over the last year also, the, out, the outlook wasn't that, that negative, but it hasn't resulted in, 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 in decent food prices. They went up. So in the long run, kind of, you know, we, we have three answers in mind. One is, the innovation agenda. And this is really to the center of every effort. If we don't keep innovating quickly and continuously, we're going to face food shortages in the medium and certainly in the long run. And the bank is in that respect very proud to support the CGIAR and also to support the many countries that are investing through our uh, credits and loans in their innovation systems. 
The second thing where we are very active at the moment is we're working on repurposing agricultural policies. And we do that in, kind of in support of the, the Policy Action Coalition. And you find in many countries that there are all kind of subsidies in place in the agriculture sector. And those subsidies may have come into place 20 or 30 years ago for very relevant and good questions, but the questions have changed. And these subsidies are at the moment not so useful anymore as they were before. So what this Policy Action Coalition tries to do, it tries to see how we can make these policies smart again. It's not so much the intention to reduce the subsidies. Okay, you know, in many ways, the agriculture sector, also because it's so critical for survival, in many ways, it will always be intervened by, by governments. The question is, how can you do that in a way that's smart, that, that, that gets the, the best bang for the buck? And then what we see also, and this is coming back to the previous presentations that we've seen, is that with the urban kind of consumer growing in importance, because more people are urban, marketing channels become more important. And basically, we see more private sector coming in. And this can be small private sector, it can be large private sector. But in all way, all means, we need to make sure that the private sector is able to operate and is able to get this food from the rural areas to the consumer and to make sure it's being used there. So, for example, in Pakistan, we've been helping the government in abolishing a policy that they had on their books and that was obliging all the food to pass through the Mandi wholesale markets. And that became a constraint to the flow of food kind of through other more efficient mechanisms. And so they've now kind of taken the step of removing that type of policy. And this will allow more opportunities for the private sector to develop alternative market channels. So those are some of the answers with respect to what we're doing in order to make sure that food prices stay in check. Thank you, Vivian. Thank you. And those are very solid. Uh... Uh, items that you're working on and I want to stick on your first point you made on your innovation agenda and just to give you a follow-up question that you can respond to in just the next one minute regarding these innovations where do you need new knowledge that CG could help provide do you have specific areas already well if you if you if you see what's happening at the moment, you see that these the, the food systems are changing, and this has many dimensions. There is a dimension of of more urban consumers. There's a dimension of digitization, which is moving forward. S food systems need to be more resilient. Kind of they need to be climate smart. So there's a lot going on. Where our knowledge needs are biggest at the moment is in understanding the urban consumer and understanding what happens in the urban areas. So we've always been talking about food availability and kind of the large quantities of food that are coming available. But how can we make sure that people that live in the slum areas of whatever big city, that they are still getting food, that it's becoming available there? And as also pointed out by some of the earlier speakers, that's a problem of distribution, but it's also a problem of governance of those systems. It's also a problem of knowing how you can actually influence or improve nutrition levels. We all know what people need to be well fed, but how can we make sure that people actually are able to get to those diets and that they then actually buy them? So 
our biggest knowledge gaps and where we would need most support from the CJAR in the coming years is on understanding the urban part of the food systems, which are growing in importance very, very quickly. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, William. And as I'd introduced you, he is the, uh, the lead agricultural econo economist at the World Bank. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll move on. Uh, we want to hear some country feedback. We have in the house representatives from the government in Nigeria and also in Ethiopia. But before that, I just want to appreciate those of you who are sending us questions. I see Alexander Morados, professor of Kamigun uh, Polytechnic. Uh, college in the Philippines. Thank you for your question. We will come back to you. Please keep uh, your questions coming. We will address them during the Q&A session. So Saro, allow me to jump right to you. Uh, Saro is, Abdella is a TB and HIV Research Directorate Director at the Ethiopian Public Health Institute. And we can see you all masked up. <laughs> okay, so a question for you. COVID-19 impacts on um, on Ethiopia's food systems. Could you probably speak to that and also highlight the national response to this? Saro, yes. Okay. Thank you, Vivian, for inviting me and all speakers for the very nice uh, presentations that you had and the, uh, the overviews of uh, different topics. So COVID-19 impacts in Ethiopia, I, as it's in uh, the world, the impact could be, you know, direct impact on uh, uh, the population in decreasing productivity through uh, disease and the death, and the impact due to the restrictions uh, posed by uh, the government to uh, halt the pandemic to propagate. So, regarding to the the, the impact of restriction, because it is uh, most, uh, you know devastating uh, issue in Ethiopia. As you know, uh, Ethiopia is a kind of a poor country that uh, according to the World Bank survey in 2020, uh, one fifth of the entire population has uh, experienced not having enough food. So this was uh, due to a higher price of food in the urban area and less regular income. So ultimately, population in the country, uh, particularly in urban country, uh, in urban uh, part of the country, had uh, less uh, food to eat with less uh, diversity. So according to 2016 Ethiopian uh, Demographic and Health Survey, uh, around 78% uh, uh, of uh, the children had uh, been under uh, the chronic malnutrition and 10% wasting and 24% underweight. So this, this, this already pre-existing uh, issue with the poverty and with insecure food system had made the restriction to worsen in the country. So the inflation was also so high in 2020 due to the, it could be attributed to the uh, restriction that was posed. In 2019, uh, there was 15.8% uh, uh, living cost inflation in the country. And in 2020, it was raised to 20.4%. Uh, and a gap back to 13% uh, in uh, 2021. Uh, this shows us uh, during the 2020, the restriction has already caused uh, you know, 
um, remarkable uh, uh, higher or elevated living cost, uh, which made difficult for urban uh, settlement uh, residents to you know enjoy their uh, food and secure their health. In fact, uh, children and adolescents are less affected by direct uh, impact of the COVID, but when uh, the health system resources goes for uh, COVID-19 responses, this uh, population had faced you know, difficulty or has faced problem in uh, having their issues addressed, health issues addressed, because they are the most vulnerable uh, individuals. So in our country, by 2020, we do had you know a number of uh, uh, issues under pressure for out of uh, different um, challenges that uh, uh, examined the, the the country for uh, less food in urban areas. Like we had uh, outbreaks of uh, livestock pests, we had swarms of locusts. Uh, conflicts were there, population were displaced. And so these all economic challenges had uh, resulted in not adhering to the movement restriction that the government has announced few months after the COVID-19 in uh, the country. So we can say, even though the restriction, the movement restriction had been uh, announced in the country, so adherence to the restrictions uh, were so limited. Uh, there was no that uh, you know strict strict uh, restriction to the the, the um, abiding to the rules and the restrictions, and finally uh, 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 the the population. In fact, luckily, even though we didn't you know abide to the restrictions posed, the prevalence of COVID-19 compared to the other Western countries are a bit uh, lower because uh, recently we have conducted survey and seen the prevalence of uh, COVID-19 were to be around uh, uh, 16 uh, percent. So in general, uh, Ethiopia had been hit by uh, COVID-19, uh, not directly, but, but indirectly due to the, the restrictions, there were uh, issues with a food system uh, security. Uh, this is what I can say. So thank you, Vivian. Back to you. Thank you, Sarah. And don't go away just yet. I have a follow-up question for you because we understand that um, uh, there are issues with to do with gender for food system transformation. Indeed, women also have to be at the center. So were there specific uh, impacts that uh, were realized in Ethiopia uh, on women regarding their health, nutrition, or even empowerment? Thank you, uh, Vivian. So, in general, we can say uh, women and girls are uh, affected by COVID-19 disproportionately. Uh, reports show, uh, from the economic perspective and the nutrition perspective, reports show that uh, women are more likely than men to suffer from food food insecurity. Uh, in Ethiopia, like in many other uh, African countries, women rely on uh, small businesses, informal businesses, to for their daily bread to, to uh, feed themselves. So in this case, when uh, movements were restricted, 
there was a direct impact on their uh, food availability or for food accessibility for them. Uh, around 14.8% of urban women in Ethiopia uh, rely on the businesses, these informal businesses, coffee selling, tea selling, on the road, uh, homemade bread selling, and so on. When a restriction was announced, these individuals uh, had, these women had a low income or they, they had no chance to sell to uh, people unless movement is there. So their business had been uh, affected uh, worsely. So, uh, so women in this uh, uh, category or in this um, country had, uh, you know, disproportionately affected. And the other thing is, uh, we had increased incidence of reports from uh, uh, internet violence and rapes, uh, increased uh, uh, report of rapes in the country were reported. So uh, in this response, uh, there was a movement in Ethiopia that says, I will not remain silent. This movement was uh, called by uh, uh, influential uh, people uh, like artists and the government was, uh, you know, uh, told to, you know, bring individuals, yeah, the women under uh, uh, these uh, violences and uh, get their justice. So this was uh, something new that we see with, uh, with uh, uh, the COVID-19. And there are also um, uh, women uh, had, you know, less healthcare accessibility due to the restriction in the uh, movement because they had no, uh, 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 no uh, for ANC visit, for example, when they go for uh, antenatal care visit and the restriction is there, transportation was uh, difficult for them to get. So healthcare facilities were not that uh, accessible. So in general, uh, there was a disproportionate application by the, yeah. I think I'm done with my time. Okay, back yes. to you, Vivian. Yes, yeah. you are. Thank you so much. Okay. And just Very reinforcing your, your comment that uh, well, in another session, I had an interesting quote that you ignore women uh, even as we seek to transform food systems at our own peril. So it means we'll not really make any progress. So we have to be sensitive to their needs. Thank you. I think I see that uh, Ibrahim is back. Ibrahim, confirm. If you're back, I will come to you. If not, I will move on to Simon Heck. You can hear me? Yes, uh, I am back. I can hear you loud and clear. Okay, great. It will be interesting to hear what uh, came out of Nigeria. What were some of the impacts of COVID on Nigeria's urban food systems? Thank you very much. Let me first of all commend the seizure for organizing this side event aimed at um, sharing experience on the impact of uh, COVID-19 at various countries. For Nigeria, of course, it is not easy. We really found ourselves in a challenge of uh, food insecurity when average Nigerian normally go out every blessing day to scout for 
what he will eat for that day and his family. It is for this reason that um, the highest policy advisory body on agriculture in Nigeria, which we normally called the National Council on Agriculture and Rural Development, that normally met every year to discuss issues that affect food security in the country, where all stakeholders, private, public, and development partners, and farmers' organization are part of it. And the central theme for this year's council meeting, which we had uh, last month, June, was agriculture and food security in the face of COVID-19 flood and insecurity. You will all agree with me that the challenge we found ourselves basically is not even the COVID-19 itself, is the rising insecurity, which prevent our small scale farmers to access their farmland and cultivate so that they will be able to feed themselves and their family. So when we come to the central area of the issue of COVID-19, of course, it has caused a lot of distortion in the economy. More importantly, in the area of uh, causing food inflation, because farmers are no movement were highly restricted and um, all the outlets for people to access food remain uh, very tight. Of course, if there are a challenge of supply chain, you know that the ultimate end is will lead to issue of um, prices inflations, which the common Nigerian cannot afford to, to buy, whereas he can't even go out to, to carry out his daily uh, activities. So, but of course, we, the, the government, with support of um, some partners, we were able to carry out a pragmatic approach of pushing the effect of the COVID-19 through the release of 70,000 metric tons, which is have it in our various silos across the country. And it was distributed most especially to the vulnerable groups and other classes of a citizen that uh, doesn't have the means to uh, attend their daily needs. Then uh, at the ministry level also, we try to capacitate small-scale farmers in terms of uh, building their capacity on good agricultural practice so that um, within the short time frame, they will be able to produce a number of commodities. More importantly, our nutrition desk and the ministry carried out a sensitization campaign on how to, how to utilize available plant 
materials across the country for farmers and rural people to really utilize such a window as a way of ensuring that they have attained the minimum dietary requirements for them to be healthy so that they can be productive and contribute to the nation economy. So uh, other measures is that the, the government is seriously strengthening our agricultural research system so that they can come out with a good crop variety that can have short lifespan, uh, thereby addressing the issue of climate change and um, adopting the climate smart agricultural practice across the country. And also we are engaging and uh, uh, attracting private sectors to key in into our silo complexes because you may be aware that government has a concession most of our silos because the resources for us to really put in place for us to use the silo to a full capacity require a lot of huge of resources. But if the private sector came in and uh, take over the issue, it will address the issue of post-harvest losses since we have all the warehouses and silo where food can be stored for unforeseen circumstances like okay, the COVID-19 other uh, predicaments. Yes. yes. Yes, 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 yes. Very good comments. And uh, I wanted to to stick to not to lose the point you mentioned on short cycle crops and, you know, uh, new varieties. And I wanted to take that cue so that we can hear from Simon and then we'll probably come back to you because now you're speaking to the need for research. So I'd like to welcome uh, Simon. I'll come back to you during the Q&A, Ibrahim. You. Yeah, Simon, uh, you can come in. Um, Simon is the Global Sweet Potato Agri-Foods uh, System Program at the International Potato Center. And he's just going to speak to uh, some of the key conclusions that probably CG will be able to draw from the report that has been presented in this session. So basically how those conclusions are going to influence the research agenda of the CGIR. Simon. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vivian. And uh, hello and greetings to everybody. Um, I'm Simon Heck calling in from Nairobi. I've been very um, pleased and impressed by the experiences shared so far in this panel. I will be brief uh, speaking on behalf of uh, parts of the CJR. Uh, let me start by congratulating Chris and his team for this study, which was both timely and insightful. It comes at a time, of course, where the CGIAR also is looking to sharpen its contributions to food systems in light of COVID and also to design new research programs uh, that will help us to do so. Um, I think uh, there are two basic um, implications or conclusions that stand out for me, broadly speaking. The first one is that taking a food systems perspective, really is essential for improving food security, nutrition, and indeed any other outcomes from agriculture. And the, what that means for the CGIR is that 
in addition to our traditional or conventional work working in the rural agriculture sector, we also need to turn our research lens uh, on parts of the food systems that we may have rather neglected so far. That includes the consumers in urban areas, it includes the food environment, the traders and retailers, the so-called middle part or missing middle, as some of you called it, uh, where many of the outcomes of food systems are actually being decided. I think COVID has been a reminder of how important that is. It taught us that there are particular vulnerabilities in each of these sections of the value chain and that we need to understand these better um, in order to contribute to addressing uh, some of these inequities. Uh, this doesn't, of course, mean that we're no longer interested in rural production as the CJR. This is our unique competency and we continue to develop and share these uh, technologies and the knowledge with our national partners. But it does mean that even that work now needs to be contextualized or placed uh, more systematically uh, within a framework of food systems and resilience along the whole chain uh, from production to consumption. Uh, and COVID-19, I think, was a good reminder, a timely reminder of that. Uh, a second implication that related to that, that we then look at, you know, where are those consumers, they increasingly are in the urban uh, areas, as several of you already uh, stated that today already more than half of all consumers live in cities and it will be over two thirds of consumers by 2050. Um, so that has um, also been brought out by COVID. Uh, we saw that these systems are not only very large and really central to health and well-being of most countries affected by COVID, but we also saw that they can be vulnerable. These systems are vulnerable, not just, and maybe not mainly to disruptions to physical supplies of food or to economic access to food, uh, but they are vulnerable to negative changes in the broader social and economic conditions in urban areas. Have you heard examples from the panel just now? You know, the decline of remittances, insecurity, gender relations, all that is affecting how urban populations can participate in food systems and the kind of benefits, nutritional income, that they can derive from these systems. Uh, we learned from COVID that food systems are highly unequal. Uh, that's not unique to this sector. It's, we saw it also in health, education, and other sectors. Uh, but we need to keep our research lens again trained on uh, how this crisis may in fact have exacerbated uh, these inequalities. Um, on the positive note, I think we also saw over the last year or so, the innovation capacity uh, within the informal sector in particular, within cities and around cities, to continue to deliver not just food, but also income and employment when other more formal sector institutions struggle to do so. Uh, so we are taking lessons from that, and that's in response to your question, Vivian, uh, that as we start to design new research programs, um, we want to work with our national partners, uh, including from Ethiopia, Nigeria, and other countries, uh, to strengthen our research design so that we can capture uh, both the vulnerabilities in these systems as well as the opportunities that there are. Um, with that, uh, Vivian, thanks very much, and I'll be happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Uh, indeed, partnerships are key for us to move forward. Thank you for those insights.
Um, we'll also move on to Sylvia, um, who is also with the CGIAR. And um, Sylvia Alonso is an epidemiologist at the International Livestock Research Institute. Sylvia, uh, just continuing with the conversation where uh, Simone dropped off, and um, we'd like to know what research the CG is currently undertaking uh, to help strengthen the resilience of urban and peri-urban food systems to COVID and also other threats. And you may also highlight um, how this research will be taken forward and uh, the priorities for the coming years. Sylvia? Yeah, thank you, Vivian. And good day, everyone. Thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this panel. So yeah, in response to your question, um, the CGIR has been working for many years across its centers and across many research programs on topics that are of relevance to uh, food systems in urban and peri-urban settings. And to give some examples, I guess the most prominent one and relevant to COVID is the One Health Research uh, portfolio of the um, CGIR. So on that one, the focus is try and understand what are the drivers of um, zoonotic emergence and transmission between animals and humans. Um, what it means, livestock intensification that is actually happening in peri-urban areas across many countries. What does that mean for, for an increase uh, in risk um, for human health in and closely? Also try and understand what that livestock intensification also means for, for the environment and how we can make livestock systems more um, efficient on the use of resources. So basically um, everything that has to do with understanding what are the drivers of zoonotic transmission and how we can um, reduce the likelihood of, of these events. Another relevant area for the CGIR research is being on informal markets. Uh, wet markets also, uh, which are very related to COVID-19 too, uh, but informal markets and trying to understand um, how they operate and how we can de-risk them. And by the risk, I mean um, reducing um, food safety challenges, for example, and, and food waste also. Um, but also trying to understand informal markets and the role they play on um, resilience, basically, and how we can make them stronger and wealthier so that actually we can protect the livelihoods that they, that they give. And well, there's many other areas and another important areas of CGR work is in policy. So how, we can, how can research support policy, well-informed policies that can eventually um, support this transition in food systems in urban and peri-urban settings. So um, countries need a lot of guidance on that. And there's a lot of questions. We've seen that on the presentations at the very beginning. And there's been a lot of questions to answer. So, well, that's what we hope our research will be answering. So these are just examples of, of the breadth of research that has been happening um, across the CGIR and that is of relevance. We do think that this needs to also be placed a bit more into the context of resilience. So understanding uh, challenges, finding opportunities and solutions, but also looking at the trade-offs and how do we balance all the different elements that are important and play a role in defining food systems in urban and peri-urban areas. So that is going to be part of the upcoming work. So what, what will the future bring in research in CDIR? Well, we want to keep capitalizing on the work that, that, that has been done. 
because um, it's all extremely relevant. But I mean, building from Chris' presentation, it becomes um, clear that yes, we need to adopt its systems focus and um, so that we can look at, at challenges and, and how to actually improve human economics and, and the entire environment in urban and peri-urban settings. So I guess in the future we'll do this. We, we want to also bring all these areas of work and research work that are relevant to urban and peri-urban settings under one um, integrated initiatives that we um, that will focus on food systems in urban and peri-urban systems. This is in the in the next three years and hopefully more. Even um, we call it resilient cities because again the focus is making this this um, environment, this ecosystems effectively uh, resilient from an economic point of view, from a health point of view, from an environment point of view. So this is going to be our focus, and we will continue doing our research demand-driven in consultation with our stakeholders, our partners. Renee mentioned a number of initiatives that are already working in urban and peri-urban settings that have plenty of questions that need to be answered. So that is where, where this, this um, initiative will focus its, its work. So that effectively will help build food systems um, that well can coexist with the demands of urban and peri-urban settings, the residential demands, the um, um, economic demands and industrial transformation that can deliver um, safe diets and healthy diets to everyone. And that can also have markets that can continue delivering income to people and that they are resilient to challenges like the COVID and those that will come in the next decades. So that's me, Vivian. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sylvia, and you've given very good examples. Uh, we'll probably come back to you during the Q&A which is the next session, actually. So um, I see a couple of questions have come in. We now move on to Q&A. We have a, around um, seven minutes for Q&A. And thank you so much for your questions. The first question I'd like to um, ask Chris uh, to respond. It's coming in from Alexander Morados. I had read it earlier. He's in the Philippines and he's asking, how can small island countries cope with the disruption of food supply chains? Okay, thanks, Ian, for the question. Um, I hope you can hear me clearly. This is this is interesting that um, the small island countries were mentioned because small island countries are actually amongst the the countries that are usually highlighted, and, and the concept of vulnerability has been often associated with those small island countries. And even research on resilience, in particular economic resilience, has often been applied to those small island countries. So I think the, the answer is at the present time, as I was mentioning earlier, and I think Rene also mentioned it, we have only a very poor understanding of actually what would be the right intervention to strengthen the resilience of food system be it in those small islands countries, which are probably more, again, vulnerable than maybe some larger countries. And I think there's a whole agenda uh, of research. So I'm not saying that to, as a player for more research, but because it's actually something that has been neglected in the past. So I don't think we have a clear answer at the present time, and I think we need to work with the government on the research agencies at the national and international level to actually deep into that issues of what are the right intervention 
uh, that allow us to strengthen the resilience of those food systems of those vulnerable countries. Over to you, Vivian. Thank you, Chris. Uh, indeed, we are still learning and there are probably more strategies as we move forward. Uh, a second question, you didn't leave your name, but you are asking. Uh, it's, it should be from, was it Chris's or Renee's presentation? That food resisted, but food security was impacted, you ask. It sounds like you're saying there was not enough food, but social arrangements of food distribution were lacking. Uh, William from the World Bank, do you want to come in and just comment on that? Thank you, Vivian, with pleasure. Uh, I, I just kind of based on that question, I look back to some of the slides that I have in my slide pack here. And I, I got a slide here which indicates that already from about 2007, 2008, uh, the, the hunger, the percentage of people that is hungry in either countries, so these are the kind of the lower income developing countries, is that it has been relatively stable. That the kind of the number of people that are hungry in IBRD countries, these are the better off developing countries, has actually been falling. But where the real increase has been is in the fragile and conflict countries. And the thing is that in the fragile and conflict countries, I think that our basis to come up with conclusions is also very poor. They're hard to study these countries. So in order to understand what's really going on in Yemen, in South Sudan, in Afghanistan, that's really difficult. And what we tend to see at the moment is that the kind of the increase in global hunger is taking place in those countries. What that suggests is indeed it is not only a food security and a food system problem. It's a problem of an enabling environment defined in much bigger terms, which doesn't allow the food system to function and which doesn't allow many other things to function. Kind of conflict, fragile conflict countries, countries have all kinds of problems. So... For us in the bank, one of the things that we do is we focus now specifically on these fragile countries in order to see how we can improve things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, William. Anyone else in my panel who would like to comment or we can move on? Okay. If not, we'll take the third question. And uh, in the interest of time, probably this will be the last so that we can move on. Uh, we have Quesiga uh, Maximus, and uh, he is asking that there's a significant need to invest in urban agriculture so as to fill the gap of pure, poor nutrition and food insecurity among the urban population. And so he's asking, what are some of the strategies that are available for us to be able to bridge this or to solve this problem? And uh, I, I, I feel like this question would be good for Rene. Yes, of course, happy to, 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 to say something here. There is a need to invest in urban agriculture and the program that, that Simon and, and Sylvia have also uh, mentioned <clears throat> is really looking into that because there's a lot of uh, understanding of what urban agriculture can do. Uh, but, but really comparable data on, on the value of urban agriculture and what investment would be needed for what type of urban agriculture. It's very local uh, determined and there, there's, a, there's a lot of 
information, but still more information is needed to decide it, which has to be, these decisions have to be taken locally. And uh, as I said, with, uh, with the different actors. But having said that, strategies are available. The strategies in terms of uh, land availability, in terms of uh, specific support to communities to have temporary access or longer term access to land, understanding what land can be used, understanding the quality of land, then uh, financing to, uh, to, to support uh, um, communities or individuals to, to invest in uh, uh, urban agriculture. Uh, market, marketing uh, linkages and market um, strategies for these for this communities. These, uh, these, these, these experiences are available. In fact, we, we just are finalizing together with FAO a source book, particularly on this. What is urban agriculture? What are the benefits? And how, what investments can be made to support different types of benefits which are applicable to different locations, but also different types of cities. Um, so um, in terms of policies as well, um, a lot of experiences with different cities are there on how to support, like I said, availability of land, but also in terms of stimulation, uh, stimulating in investment uh, and, and stimulating also, and that was re a remark uh, some of the panelists made, of consumers to be aware of how to access this, uh, this type of uh, nutritious and healthy food that can be grown in and around the cities, which of course always needs to be linked to, to uh, food coming from peri-urban and, and near rural or farther away. It is a combination. Uh, urban agriculture is not a panacea of the whole of the, of the, um, uh, the lack of food in, in some places. So yes, there are strategies and it depends for different cities, different locations, what strategies should be applied in terms of investment or policies. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Willem. And unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, I'd really hate to bring this to an end, but uh, I have to. And we have John uh, McDermott. He's been waiting, listening into the session, and he has uh, closing remarks that he's going to give. So John is the director of the CGIR research program on agriculture for nutrition and health. And he's also the co-lead of the CGIR COVID-19 hub. John, you're welcome for the next five minutes and then we'll be done. Thank you, Vivian. Um, and it's been a pleasure to listen to this panel. It's been, it's been very interesting. And of course, COVID-19 has had huge impacts on many systems, including food systems. And it's safe to assume, I think, that we're going to see twists and turns over the next year or two, um, as there are further changes and different impacts to come. Um, now, Chris and his team were really good at exposing kind of the major vulnerabilities um, and the, the kind of adaptations that have taken place so far. And also, um, others brought up some of the accelerated changes in supply chains and digital, et cetera. Um, so, so there's a lot of general issues out there. I think we've had, we've drilled down on a few other things that have been quite useful to us though. So the kind of differential impacts on urban and rural food systems in many countries have been played out. And I think Kwa and, and Ibrahim a bit in, in Nigeria kind of showed this um, in terms of the fact that primary agriculture was relatively spared um, and that urban populations, urban income, especially those involved in food services, fresh food markets, anything where kind of um, daily labor was required, 
had a big problem. Uh, it was a huge impact. And the absolute changes in urban income were much, much greater. Um, vulnerable rural populations, of course, were affected like any vulnerable populations, but um, we've really seen impacts on, on urban populations. Um, and obviously vulnerable populations were very much affected also by the disruption of public programs. Uh, so it's been a tough time for people. And, um, and, uh, and uh, I think it's highlighted a few things. Now, it's not surprising, I think, that there's a lot to learn about urbanizing food systems. Um, in lower middle and middle income countries, the dynamic change in food systems around urban areas is really unprecedented in human history. Uh, we haven't seen anything this fast or this rapid involving so many people before. Um, and so there's a lot to learn. Now, COVID, I think, has helped us to learn some of that. And as the pandemic persists, I think we'll learn even more. But I wanted to take a few uh, points from what people said that I think are key to moving forward. And I like Willem's kind of characterization of the enabling environment as being important for people to make good decisions and adapt and move forward. So one of the topics I've been very interested in during COVID is kind of looking at governance, political economy, agency, partnerships also came up today as a way of getting that enabling environment. Um, I think we've seen evidence that where there is more transparency and information and where there's more trust, uh, things have worked better. Programs, uh, food system change, that's been better. Um, beyond social protection, I think there's been a bit of blindness about gender and equity issues, and, and that, that has affected vulnerable populations, and there's a real opportunity to move forward on that. So, so that's one kind of topic, the whole governance, political economy, agency, partnership. A second one is on the complex linkages between rural, peri-urban, and urban areas and within urban areas, uh, how complicated those are. Um, and then their implications on food and people and how they move and how they interact. Um, and it has implications for availability and prices. And we see lots of little pressure points where it doesn't take much to change things in certain circumstances to have a problem. So I think that's and that's obviously an area for Simone and Sylvia and others to look forward to is these, these complex linkages. Um, one thing that Sylvia touched on, but I think is a bit of a gap so far, is what's the One Health challenges in urban food systems? And there is some past research looking at the kind of implications of infectious diseases on urbanization. They're big because there's, there's greater density of, of people and often of animals uh, as well, and their interactions and the environments change. Um, there's, there's less work than there should be on that. One source of information, I think, is there's been a lot of work in the kind of urban planning and One Health uh, space in Latin American cities. And Latin America is the, is the developing region most urbanized. So that, I think that's a source of information for people. Um, so those are just a few reflections for me. I really thought the panel was good at bringing out different points. Um, and I think Chris's kind of formative report laying out the issues was very helpful in framing that. 
Uh, so I just like to thank you all. Uh, it's been a pleasure to listen to it uh, carefully and to be able to say a few words to summarize it. So Vivian, over to you. Thank you, John. And indeed, well summarized. It has been a good panel. We have had good speakers. A lot of information has flown. And we thank everyone who has made this a success, including those who are working behind the scenes. So at this point, uh, thank you even for the active participation for our audience. And mine is just to bring this to a close and to remind you that tomorrow we have another event uh, at 9.30 a.m. Uh, and um, we are going to be discussing reforming agricultural policies to support food systems transformation. So we hope to see you online via the usual uh, channels that we are streaming on. Thank you so much and uh, bye to you all.